Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And welcome to Secure the Insecure, the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seifert, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. Now, after watching everybody talking about Jamie on Amazon Prime this week, I really wanted to discover more about the art when it comes to drag culture. Therefore, I'm delighted that my guest this week has agreed to come on Skiddy and Secure to educate me. You'll know her from being on season one of Drag Race UK, and this week she's back on TV on Karaoke Club Drag Edition on ITV2 and the ITV Hub. I'm delighted to say joining me this week is Crystal. Now, welcome to the show, Crystal. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Johnny. The, the thing with drag culture is, and from what I've learned about everybody's talking about Jamie, is there's a story and there's a journey that you went on, obviously, to get to Crystal. That's <laughs> not who you really are. You're not Crystal, obviously. I'm not. Are you okay if I can call you Colin for a minute and go back to the life of Colin in Canada? Sure. Sure. We can do that. We've got a real drag novice on our hands. I see. I see. I see. I like this. I like this. Well, you're, you're here <laughs> to educate me. I know zero basically I, I knew obviously that RuPaul's Drag Race existed and I knew there's a drag culture but I know next to nothing and that's why I'm really excited because it means I get to learn about it and I get to learn from one of the best okay well I'm here let's do it okay so take me session, back, baby so okay so let's go back to the 1980s you grew up in Canada so let's start with the childhood of Colin Munro first sure yeah so I grew up in rural Nova Scotia which is on the east coast of Canada um and yeah, it was a weird part of the world. My parents aren't from there. They're both from other parts of the world. My mom's British. And we were just kind of happened to be in Nova Scotia. And it's no one can really picture Nova Scotia. But the best thing you can do is like picture a Stephen King novel set in Maine, like really rocky, a little bit uh, windswept, a lot of poverty, some like backwards ideas definitely when it comes to things like race and gender and sexuality. It's a bit of a weird place to grow up, but I was really in a lovely bubble because my parents were both hippies. So they really instilled a lot of really great values in me and always encouraged me to be whoever I wanted to be and whatever I wanted to be. So I was in a, I was in a little bubble in a, in a harsh world, I guess. Okay. So 
what was school like for you? Were you, you know, the popular child in school? Were you at the back of the school classroom? You Absol front? Absolutely not. When I was really young, I was popular. And that's because I was, uh, you know, pre-puberty, I was really outgoing. I was into theater. I hadn't really learned any of the things that were wrong with me, in quotes, according to society yet. So I was just living a bit of a charmed life and a very happy kid. And when I was 11, we moved, we moved and I changed schools. And so I joined a new school where everyone already knew each other. And it was just at that age that kids were starting to go through puberty and people are starting to realize, you know, oh, maybe this person's different. And I quickly was told by these kids that I was different, I was weird, I was a freak, I was, there was something wrong with me. And I spent basically the rest of my time at school really isolated, really insecure, pretty friendless. And it wasn't until I was about 17 that I found friends that kind of also fit into that mold of the outsider and the weirdo and and started to find my tribe. But I think it's a tale as old as time for queer people that as soon as kids realize there's something different about you, they will point it out, let you know, and in worst case, bully you for it. So is that how you identified then? You identified as gay in those middle ages until you got 17 and go, right, I'm gay. I found other people who are gay. Or did you not know what you were? You just knew you were a bit no, different. I, yeah, I had no idea. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I, uh, it probably wasn't until... I was 16 or so that I kind of twigged what was going on or, you know, accepted in my own head that that was probably what was going on. Kids at 11, I didn't even really necessarily understand that concept of masculinity and femininity. So the fact that someone was telling me that I was too femme, you know, all I knew was that I didn't want to play sports with the boys and I wanted to hang out with the girls and I didn't see a problem with that. But the world has very small boxes for people and uh, it really encourages people to stay within them. So I just didn't have anything to relate to straight boys about. And, you know, they were all figuring out that they liked girls and they were exploring that. And they, you know, there was just a whole thing there that I never really connected with. And I'm not sure that would have been any different today. But I think probably what would have been different is maybe more adults around me might have recognized that I was queer and kind of encouraged me and nurtured that. And I think there might have been a greater awareness that queerness actually exists because I just don't think there was that so much in the 90s or that there was a fear that like you could make someone gay by talking about it. And when you talk about Section 28 here in the UK, I just think that there, there would have been more support and it definitely would have been easier. But I'm not sure that I think that kids will always find difference and maybe pick on it. And I'm just, I think that might be a bit of a sad fact of life. It really is. And what's interesting is that you didn't go to the status quo. You didn't suddenly put a load of posters of girls up on your wall. You didn't try to make yourself straight. You went, okay, I'm not that. I can't be that. I don't know what I am, yeah. but I'm definitely not straight. Yeah, maybe it would have made my life easier in some ways, but I had I didn't even have the, the ability to do that. I was just, all I could be was me. And yeah, that was just a little bit tricky. I came out right after high school. I think I came out at my prom. I think that was my big coming up story. Speaking of everybody's talking about Jamie. And then after that, I started to make gay friends and, you know, start to ex explore that side of myself. But before that, no, it was just, it was just finding people who also were a little bit weird. <laughs> well, how did you find that? How did you find exploring it? Did you feel like you were making up for lost time? Did you feel like this is, you know, this is a whole world that I'm about to go into? Where, where do I begin? Yeah, it was, it was intimidating for sure. And I think because so much of gay culture even today is wrapped up in drinking culture and bars and things like that. And I wasn't old enough yet to go to bars in Canada. 
drinking age is 19 there. So I was, if I was 17 when I came out, I, you know, I couldn't do that. So it, it was a little bit like, how do I find my people? Where do I meet them? I think I probably joined like some early chat groups on the internet and I maybe tried to join like a youth group, but that didn't really work. It wasn't until I was able to start going to a bar and drinking, actually go to a gay bar that I started to actually make gay friends, really. I was just happy to be around gay people and like to learn about gay culture and to see things in real life that I'd only seen on TV up until that point. And to, to try and figure out, you know, how much of Queer as Folk and how much of Will and Grace is actually real and how much of that is just stereotypes. And where do I fit in with this, within this community? What is my role? Am I attractive in this world? How do I fit in? And yeah, it's just really about exploration, I, I would say. I think it's so interesting because for me, it's, it's a whole new world. And it, like you said, the word of exploration of there is so much to look at. And for me, it's just a normal thing that you're thinking about, you're going to date, you're going to do X, Y, Z, and it all seems to be quite straightforward. Whereas you had to actively go out there. You had to find the gay bar, the gay club, the gay person to actually start living. What, what did you learn most about yourself in, that moment, in those moments when you really started to know who you really were? There must have been a sign of acceptance mm. there at last of going, right, I yeah. actually accept who I am now. Yeah, I think it was understanding that I actually did have some worth and value um, as part of a community because up until that point, my adult life or my adolescent life had been really formed around feeling pretty worthless. So finding myself in that community really helped me understand that there was value to me, I suppose. And, you know, maybe at the beginning, that's quite shallow and it's about having value as a, as a, a, as an attractive person or as someone that people want to sleep with. But, and that can be obviously harmful and damaging and problematic in its own way. But I think just the, the ability to find people who value you and to see yourself through other people's eyes as something, as someone who has worth is a very, very, very powerful and necessary thing i think for all humans a hundred percent and especially like now when we talk about mental health very openly back then mental health wasn't a thing and i could imagine for you you'd have gone down to those really lows without even realizing how low you were at mm -hmm. yeah definitely i mean my mom had no idea what to do to help me bless her but i remember just like just crying a lot and telling her that i thought i was going to be alone forever and that I was so lonely and I just think that's so tragic. I don't think any child should have to experience that. It's very sad. I feel bad for that kid. Is, have you distanced yourself from that kid? I mean, yeah, because it was so long ago that it doesn't even necessarily feel like me anymore. So much has changed and happened in my life since then, but those hurts, those are the things that stay with you forever as well. And they definitely inform the way you move through the world for the rest of your life, I think. Such a formative time. Well, you made that move because you started getting into drag. And I suppose for yourself, it was a new form of identity. Like you said, you could put Colin away. You could put away that guy that didn't fit in anywhere. You could create this brand new person who you wanted it to be, but also in a way who was also accepted in a, in a world. Mm-hmm, definitely. I mean, drag actually, I got into drag quite late. I think I did find that community in nightlife and just in friendships and I worked fashion. So I kind of found myself in work and in nightlife. And then when I found drag, it was like the final missing piece of the puzzle of like a, 
oh, this is a way for me to unlock my full potential. I guess distance myself from that trauma, but also just maybe access the power that I think I might've had if I'd never experienced that trauma in the first place. Okay, so where did your drug journey begin? In London, uh, in mm, probably 2013. Oh, recently? Maybe, maybe, We're only talking yeah. literally less than a decade ago. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I had done it once or twice for Halloween and things like that. And I had performed a little bit because I used to do a bit of boylesque. It wasn't totally alien to me, the whole world, but I was training as a circus performer as like a hobby um, alongside my day job. And I decided to put on a cabaret show that I could perform my aerial circus routine. And I booked a bunch of other people. And one of them was a drag queen, uh, an East London based queen. And, and then I did another show and I kept booking these queens and they were so different to the drag that I had experienced back home in Canada at my local gay bar, which I think was a bit more of the antiquated style, the Blackpool style of drag. This was fresh, it was exciting, it was dangerous, it was creative, and I was so intrigued by it. I, had, I hadn't realized there was all of this power and potential in drag until I saw these entertainers. And I think Drag Race was also a, a bit of a part of that because this was around season three. So I was, I'd been watching it since the beginning and, and we had started to see a couple characters on Drag Race that were also really breaking that mold, like Sharon Needles or trying to think of someone from, from like Raja from season three. I was really excited to see that. And I thought, oh, maybe this is something that I could give a try to. So I just started dabbling and drag is a very, very slippery slope. The second you start, that first time you glue down their eyebrows, the first time you put a wig on, if it's for you, that's it. You're going to be sucked in like quicksand. And that's definitely what happened to me. I think almost every cis male gay man has at some point worn a towel like a dress or wrapped a towel around their head and pretended it was a wig. Um, my mom wasn't a heel person. She was a hippie. So there were no heels in the house, but I'd be lying if I hadn't done all of that. But I, I don't think that's necessarily the trajectory from that to drag queen, because if that was the case, then every gay man I know would be a drag queen. Now, I think it's something that I hadn't really just considered for myself. And then and then when the door was opened and I saw people doing it and doing it so well, that's when I was felt like, oh, this is something that I could try as well. But yeah, it was, I guess as the zero to a hundred is a pretty good, pretty good way of describing it. Where's the line that, that you've gone from dressing up in a female clothes to being a drag queen? Like, is it, 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 what, what makes it a drag queen and not just you dressing up in female clothes? Uh, I think that depends on the person, but for me, I, I guess I guess I would answer that 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 is about intention because um, a cis man can wear women's clothes and that can be for pleasure, and you might call that a transvestite or transvestitism or kink. Um, you could also just practice you could just enjoy wearing women's clothes and not and it could just be completely free of labels but i think when you're doing drag and the thing that makes it drag is about the exaggeration and the intention of creating a new persona and a new character and that's definitely what it means for me so for me i'm trying to portray something new and it's not necessarily that i'm trying to portray a woman but i'm trying to create a new persona and a new creature that is totally different to me when I'm not in drag. And so for it, me, I love, I, I love makeup. I love 
big wigs. I love corseting. I love doing all of that stuff because it all adds to the illusion. It all makes, when I look in the mirror, I see someone completely new and completely different. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That said, you can put on a pair of lashes, a shake-and-go wig, and a dress you found at the thrift store, and that can still be drag. Do you love yourself as Colin? Yeah, I do now, for sure. But that took that kind of took a long time to get to. And that's something that I think drag was really fantastic for because like I said before, I when I found drag, I, I it kind of gave me a permission to be that fully realized authentic version of myself and the more you do that and the more you practice that kind of, I guess, radical self-acceptance and the more you get applauded for that on stage or encouraged for that, I think the more that can kind of bleed down into your day-to-day life. It's kind of a funny way to do it. And I probably most therapists would, you know, might be like, oh, that you're kind of going about this the wrong way, but it, it really worked for me. And now, yeah, now I can access that confidence, those abilities when I'm not in drag. There was a point when I first started doing drag that I really had a real split between the two personas. And Crystal was breathy and a bit more brash. She was just a little bit different to me. And when I was in drag, there was definitely more of like a a persona. And 
that has changed the more I've done drag and there's really very little difference between how I act in and out of drag, except that I'm maybe just a bit more exaggerated. Again, when I first started drag, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to be on a podcast, for example, unless I was in drag because it felt like my armor. And now, you know, I don't, I don't care about that at all. It's, it's exactly the same. I can access that confidence whenever I need to. But is that because that brash attitude that Crystal, your drag persona had, is almost that attitude you wish you'd had when you were at school, when you were being bullied, that you wish you had that inner voice that you didn't know existed yet? Yeah, exactly. It was just, it's that attitude of not, not caring about what other people think or owning a space or, or demanding that people look at you or give you, give you, a, give you the intent, attention and respect that you're entitled to. And those are things that are so easy to do in drag because obviously the second you walk into the room, everyone's going to look at you because you look incredible. So having that experience, you know, it can, it can really help you find that voice, the same voice out of drag. Cause you realize that there's actually no real difference. It's, it's more of an, it's more about an attitude than it is about any of the makeup or hair or anything like that. So where does that image begin then? So you've got a blank camera, which you go, well, I'm going to go into full drag and I need hair, I need eyelashes, I need makeup, I need outfits. Where do you begin? Oh, wow. Okay, well, first step, I mean, if we're, we're going to talk makeup routine here, but the first step, you have to glue down your eyebrows and then you do your whole, and then you do your whole face and then you probably do your corset tree and undergarments and then you probably get dressed and your hair would go on last and the very last is your nails. Because you can't but you know you've on. got an image because you always have to look the same every time you do drag. So how did you know what look you actually wanted to go for? Well, I don't have to look the same. That's the beauty of drag is that you can look different every single time. I don't have I don't have a signature look. I'm my makeup is always going to be somewhat similar because it's on the same face and it's painted by the same person. So there's always going to be a through line. But I really, really, really love the experimentation. I wear different color, different size wigs. I wear ball gowns. I wear latex cat suits. I wear all sorts of things. And the through line, the, the thing that makes it all me is the fact that it's me wearing it all. Um, I feel like an actress who is playing different parts. And that's kind of the beauty of drag. You know, you look at it, any Hollywood actress and how different they look in, in every single film that they're in or different colored hair or different styles. And I, th I think that's the beauty of drag. You can access lots of different characters and lots of different looks. So you take those looks. Now, as you said with Hollywood, you've got those Hollywood full gowns I and mean, they're you know, a couple of grand per dress. How does that compare to drag culture? Are you spending a lot of money because um, it's just expensive to maintain or has the mainstream not accepted drag culture and therefore you've got to go to specialist stores to get the, the gear? Um, yeah, it's all still very specialist because you're, you're still dressing um, a man's body in a, in a quote unquote female garment. So you pretty much everything has to be custom. So it is expensive. It's, it's super expensive. That said, that's why drag queens are the craftiest people in the world because we've all learned how to make things for ourselves, to get it done on a dime, to recreate a, a red carpet look using a cheaper material without a, without a lining, without a hem, you know, to, to fudge it and I, that's that is just queer creativity and queer ingenuity on display and that's what's also so wonderful about drag is you get to see all of that 
Now, as my career progressed and as I got more successful, I have found people who I love working with, who I trust, who are great artists in their own right. And so now I have people who do my hair for me, for example, because I don't have a sweet clue about doing that. And it was always a, a weak area for me. So now I outsource that. But when it comes to garments, I still make a lot of my own stuff. And yeah, I also work with people who, who make things for me. And yes, it is super expensive. And the expectation of drag fans is constant newness. People always want to see a new look, new hair, new ideas, new concepts. So there's a lot of pressure to keep turning out new, new looks. So there's a pressure with the looks, but is there also pressure to meet expectations? You know, I, I suppose a lot of the LGBT community would have grown up watching RuPaul's Drag Race, but now it's starting to become more mainstream with it being shown on the BBC iPlayer, BBC Three here in the UK, that a lot of people who are not LGBT identified are also watching it now. And so therefore, when they're looking at a drag queen, they think, well, this is, has to be what a drag queen is. I've seen it at a drag night, for example, and therefore you've got to raise that bar. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a real problem for drag in general because people have seen people have seen Drag Race and they have one one idea or one expectation of what a drag artist should be. And actually, the the world of drag is so much broader and more colorful than even Drag Race can portray. And for myself, when I produce shows, which I do every month in London, I always book entertainers who are a little bit outside of that mold because I want to show people all of the brilliant colors of the of, of drag. Um, but yeah, of course you still get people coming up to you on the street and giving you RuPaulisms and thinking that's you or you get someone who books you and asks you when you're going to do your death drop and that isn't something that I do. So, um, you know, it's part of the, it's par for the course. And I think whenever something becomes commercial or successful or mainstream, you're going to have that slight negative element to it as well where people think that they know you or know what you do based on a tv show okay well so age 17 you came out you started learning about your stuff then it was 2013 again you started playing in drugs then you released a podcast two years ago the things that made me i hope i can say the word queer for you for this because it's the title of your podcast yeah. so the things that made me queer podcast you've done two seasons of that now what have you learned about yourself in that time? Because you've spoken to so many different types of people. I've listened to a couple of episodes now. And everyone's got a story. And everyone's got a very different story. None of you came the same way. I think I've kind of just learned what I've been telling you today about how drag helped me figure myself out, how my childhood trauma kind of shaped me, what negative things that has, you know, left lingering inside and what work I still have to do. I think... I love that podcast because it it shows the richness and the the breadth of the queer community and it really demonstrates that yeah not all stories are the same and we don't all fit into a mold and there isn't a cookie cutter queer experience there are still touch points and some commonalities that we all share and I think it's really really important to for the queer community to embrace our our similarities and for people outside the queer community to understand our differences. I'm not about to sit here and say that we need more drag representation, definitely not drag queens. If anything, we, what we need to see going forward is drag kings getting a, getting a moment in the spotlight. So that's what I oh, love so to there's see. A, there's a thing called drag kings as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, of course. So if, if 
uh, a man can dress up as a woman and and mock masculinity. I mean, why can't a woman dress up as a man and, and do the same thing? Okay, hold on, hold on. So this is it. This is a real thing, drag queens. Yes, it's been going is just as not? long as drag queens. Yeah. I've never yeah. heard of a drag king before. Wow, well, there we go. Every Like we said, class is in session, Johnny. <laughs> this is so interesting. So what's the difference between a drag king and a drag queen? A drag king's as eccentric as drag queen. The drag kings come in as many shapes and sizes and colors and and creativity as um, as queens do. And the only the only difference and there, there's equally as few rules and as few um, as there's no box that you can put a drag king into. Just like there's no box you can put a drag queen into. And I think one day we'll just call everyone a drag artist and we'll forget about these labels. But for anyone listening who would love to see some really creative drag kings, go follow um, Androgen and Hercules and uh, Oedipussy. Three amazing, amazing, amazing. Oh, and Landon Sider, who was a guest on my podcast last season as well. Four amazing kings that really showed the breadth and possibility of creativity within drag king world. Okay, I'm looking at Landon Sider now on Instagram. Do it if you have your listening. I'm going to be totally honest with you because I'm so interested in this. It reminds me of, this is such a new world for me. I don't see Landon Sider as a drag king. I, I don't know how to label it. This <laughs> yeah, is, well, this that's, is so, I, such a new thing for me. I think that's a good, I think that's a great place to be is to have your challenge, your expectations and your ideas challenged. What Landon does is extreme artistry, creativity and costume through a lens of masculinity. So for example, here's Landon. I'm just showing you my phone. I don't know if you can see it. It's a gremlin from the movie Gremlins. Now, and that counts as obviously, drag. That counts as drag. Sure. Why not? What is anything can be drag. Okay, so those it's, two it's, pictures look like fancy dress, though, not drag. So how do you differentiate between the two? Well, I suppose fancy dress doesn't have the, the element of performativity. Not that drag necessarily has to have that to be drag. But the idea, the initial idea is probably that that is going to be a persona that appears on stage and gives a performance. Right, okay. Well, look, let's talk about performances because this week <laughs> on ITV2 and on the ITV Hub, one of my favourite programmes, Celebrity Karaoke Club Returns. All the normal celebs, all my favourite celebs, all my friends of the Security and Skill podcast have been on it. Amelia Lilly, Mark Francis, Marcel, Brian Dowling, Tanya Bardsley, Ada Dudu, all the brilliant are there. But this is a special, and I know we're kind of going against what we said before, but this is a karaoke club drag edition. So, Tell me about your involvement in it. Yeah, so I was one of the contestants on the series and it is, what would you like to know? You've watched the first series, right? So it's basically, it's basically a piss up in a karaoke bar, but this time it's with drag artists. And once again, I mean, if you, you what you need to do, Johnny, is watch the rest of the series because there is a drag king on the series who comes in later and um, maybe that will answer some of your questions. Crystal, I can't thank you enough. I just want to thank you for educating me. And everyone listening to this, I'm sure would have learned something new. And it's thanks to you. And it's thanks to people like you 
that come out of your comfort zone and educate people because it's very easy to say, look, this is my story. I don't want to be defined by it. And number one, accept me for who I am. And number two, don't ask me questions. You know, this is me, accept it. But I think for someone like myself, who's so curious about the world, it just helps having someone answer those questions that we've always wanted to know and never known where to seek the answers to. You can't just Google these things. So I really thank you for your honesty. Karaoke Club, it's my pleasure. Queen Special is on the ITV Hub. Go and watch it. Go and watch it on ITV too. And uh, you've been listening to Goodie and Scared with me, Johnny Sefer. And if you've liked what you heard and you've learned something new, go on to Apple iTunes, give it a five-star rating, leave a review. It really helps me to get it up in the chart and also to say it's okay to not be okay. And also check out the podcast of things that made me queer. So the things that made me queer, go and rate that, listen to that, subscribe to that, do the exact same as Goodie and Scared. I've been Johnny Seifer and I'll speak to you next week. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.